You have a very special nature. One we've worked hard together to unlock. Results are normal. Anything you want to flag? No. No, I'm fine. Mom! How was your trip? Dull. Extraordinarily dull. Our next contract's a big one. The target is the CEO of the largest operation in the U.S. You'll be binding to Colin Tate. We can't afford any mistakes on this one. Ready? Today. What do you mean? I'm in place. Can we help you? Finish this. What are you doing? I can't pull the trigger. I need to know. I need to know what she's done to me. It's become a danger. Where is she? Come out or I'll do it! Sometimes, that small thought is all it takes to lose control. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of Fresh Cuts. I am Mike130, your host tonight, and with me, as always, it's Mr. Venom. How are you doing? Greetings and salutations, mental assassins. Yes, I'm doing very good. How are you doing, Mike? I am doing very well. 2020 is rapidly coming to an end, and it's like out of nowhere, there's all these movies that were we're probably not even going to get to on fresh cuts by the end of the year. So, <laughs> but, uh, we're going to be talking about one tonight that I've been looking forward to. So, uh, but before we get to that, let me also introduce our other co-host tonight. It's Donna Nelly. Welcome back. Don. Hey, what's going on, man? Nice to be here. Yeah. So it's our post Thanksgiving fresh cuts, a little to nothing to do with the actual movie. I don't know why I just, kind of threw that in there but uh, <laughs> uh tonight we are discussing the horror sci-fi thriller listed in that or era or order on imdb it would be possessor and uh, the director writer is brandon cronenberg if you recognize the last name yes cronenberg's son brandon cronenberg this is not his feature debut though he did have a movie antiviral what is it a couple years ago i think it was mm-hmm. um so this is the follow-up to that. Uh, was looking forward to this one. So we'll see what we have to say about it. Let me get the IMD synopsis. Possessor follows an agent who works for a secret organization that uses brain implant technology to inhabit other people's bodies, ultimately driving them to commit assassinations for high-paying clients. Wow. It's, it's something you can almost see, future technology. <laughs> being able to do which is kind of scary in itself 
But uh, before we get into that, we'll get general thoughts. Venom, let's start with you. What did you think of Possessor? Um, I unfortunately hadn't seen Cronenberg's first movie, so I wasn't really sure what to expect. But yeah, I really, really love this movie. This movie was so much fun. It's a complete mind fuck throughout. Uh, it's definitely it's definitely a movie that um, um, deserves, dare I say, demands your full attention. Like this is definitely not something you're gonna put on in the background while you're doing other stuff. You you gotta pay attention to this movie. There are so many little nods and tip offs throughout the film that let you know you know the kind of foreshadow some stuff that's uh, coming up you know later in the film. Um, this movie is brutal as hell. Every kill in this movie is excessively brutal um, to the point where I was just so curious as to how how many times people were getting stabbed and chopped that I actually rewound and counted them. So I'll go over those numbers when we do the spoiler section. But yeah, some very brutal kills. Uh, one non-kill even that was in probably one of the most brutal things in the movie. And, uh, you know, the person survived, but like I said, we'll get into that in the spoiler section. But yeah, that's definitely, that's solidly where the horror from this film is coming from, because I wouldn't call this a horror sci-fi. To me, this is a sci-fi horror. It's it's more solidly sci-fi uh, based on just um, how they're performing the things that they're doing. Um, you know, the, the whole binding process, which is what they call it in the film, the binding um, you know, when one assassin, you know, kind of mind melds with an innocent victim and then, you know, goes about their um, their assassination. But um, like I said, between the brutality, between the pitch perfect writing, uh, some amazing performances and an incredible score. It, it's kind of a minimalist score, but I absolutely love it. It's not out in your face, but it, it sets the tone so beautifully. And, you know, even the editing, this movie's edited so well, jumping between, um, you know, different mindsets as far as like, you know, who's controlling what body and who is like the dominant personality at the moment, things like that. Um, the way that they, um, uh, the sequence where they actually kind of portray the binding um just how they, you know, they, it's a big metaphor. The whole scene of that first binding, the only time that we actually see the binding occur, um, it's just a giant metaphor, and I absolutely love it. Some of the most stunning images in the film are going to be during that scene and also uh, throughout the film as people's mind starts to fracture and they start kind of delving into each other's memories, blah, 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 not intentionally. But uh, like I said, we'll go into all of this in the spoiler section. But, man, yeah, I really, really enjoyed this movie. There's not really a whole lot I can nitpick about this. I mean, for such an early effort from Brandon Cronenberg, this thing is damn near a masterpiece. I know a lot of, a lot of horror fans especially are going to rail on this being called horror. But like I said, the brutality of it, it just, I mean, how can it be denied? It, I, I liken this movie to last year's um, The Lords of Chaos, where a lot of people were kind of on the fence on whether it was a horror movie. But the kills in that movie were so fucking brutal that, you know, you, you kind of have to include it in the horror genre. So I think this movie falls in the into that same category of just ultra brutal, you know, um, horror adjacent films so yeah 
Um, I'll shut up now because, I, like I said, I can go on forever about this one. This was a genuinely fun film. It was different. It was something that I hadn't really experienced before. You know, I'm sure, I'm sure there's films like this out there. And as I was watching it, there were certain scenes that I was, you know, it's like, oh, that looks just like Blade Runner or, oh, that looks just like, you know, whatever other movie I thought of. So the homages are all there. Um, it's very solidly Cronenberg. You've got some body horror in here. Um, you've got, you know, the mind, the level of mind fucks of, of like a video drone. So um, it's very solidly Cronenberg and it's very solidly a great film. So I'll stop there. All right. Uh, Don, what did you think of Possessor? Oh, I am going to rail on this not being a horror film because for me, it's not. Uh, I never even once for a second even imagined it, it would be. Um, I couldn't even find a single second where this actually would be a horror film. So um, not only that, I couldn't give two rat fucks about what happened in anything that went on in this movie. Um, uh, I just was completely lost by the 20 minute mark. Uh, everything was just rushed. There's, I, I don't know where you call the writing good because the writing to this is absolutely atrocious. Uh, the first wow. 20 minutes, it's just absolutely rushed. There's no sense of anything going on. There's no sense of who these people are, what they're doing, what the job is, so, you know, how this process even works, why she's even taking the job because her family life is absolutely completely completely irrelevant there's very little about this that got me in and very little afterwards that kept me involved i mean i was checking in and out of what was going on like every five to ten minutes uh i will give credence to the gore i will think it's great um eh, i don't know if that's really enough for me to say i liked it uh it's definitely like you said trippy i do I do think the the technical aspects of the film are great. I do like the the imagery that we get when we're inside the the, the mind, where we're seeing we're seeing her connected to all of these various like I guess you could say like ports or like various like aspects of her that are I, I'm trying to like figure out the words to this and I don't know where where it's coming from because it's like just trippy. It's like She's hooked up to a VR machine, but yet it's like a natural sense. There's like natural, it's like a, there's like a naturalness to it that's not like machinery, but yet that's like the idea because she's like implanted in the mind, but yet the mind's trying to fight over. And I, I, I do enjoy that aspect of it. I do think there's a lot to take away from that. But the rest of it, I was checked out. I was uninterested and... Other than the gore, the blood and special effects work, nothing kept me interested. Nothing really wowed me. I, I mean, I couldn't even find this to be a genuine horror film, so uh, I really didn't care for this much. The horror thing, I can agree with you. Like I said, um, for me, the only thing that makes it horror is is its brutality. And I understand that there's a certain mindset, um, such as yourself, where that's not enough to make it a horror film. It has to have a certain kind of tone, a certain tension, right. you, know, you know, certain elements. I am totally on board with you there. 
But like I said, I brought up Lords of Chaos, which is probably another movie that you're not real on the horror scale with. And yeah, it's that one kind of the same thing. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely more of a thriller drama that just has some incredibly brutal kills in there. Um, on top of the fact that, you know, Lords of Chaos was based on a true story, how accurate it is obviously is up for interpretation, but I think that added a little bit of an element to know that these events actually happened. As far as Possessor goes, I'm not going to disagree with you on your assessment of it being horror or not. Um, I, I, cause I'm right. I was right there on the fence after my first watch, I ended up watching it again today and kind of understanding why people are calling it a horror movie. Just certain people have different definitions of horror, and that's valid, ultimately. I'm not going to tell someone that they're wrong. Cause they yeah, don't think I'm, that... I'm not even interested in debating it. Right. Just, like you said, for me, I don't even, don't even come close. Yeah, and that's fine. That's totally valid. That's, uh, that, uh, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not going to argue that whatsoever. Uh, but I do solidly see some fans of the genre kind of coming and saying that, yes, I agree that it's a horror film. Um, to me, like I said, it's not horror first and foremost. Absolutely, positively. For IMDb to call it horror, then sci-fi, to me, is incorrect. It should solidly be sci-fi, thriller, horror. I mean, that's probably how I would put it. Uh, the horror. Would that be the sounds least. pretty. That right. sounds a little more accurate, I would say. Yeah, yeah. I, I like that. I like that rearranging a lot better. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, you know, ultimately, you know, it, it, it's apples and oranges. You know, one person's going to find it to be horror, another isn't. But uh, your comment about the writing, wow. Uh, yeah, I really can't agree because this movie had me riveted right from the beginning as far as the storyline. Like I said, this isn't something that I've really been exposed to before the whole you know uh, mental killer type thing or at least not in this context where someone's actually possessing another body i thought that was pretty mildly cool and original so that grabbed me right away um and then our main characters it, it's a dumb thing to say but our main character's name got me i fucking love her name tasia vaz it fucking sounds like a star wars bounty hunter to me as soon as I heard her name, I'm like, oh, I'm in. I love that name. Especially because everyone else in the movie is like Catherine, Holly, Michael. Everybody has normal names. And then our assassin is named Tasia. I love that. Uh, but Mike, I'm yeah, sorry. It I'm, sounds I'm, like, yeah. I was going to say, it sounds like a Star Wars villain or like a Batman villain. Yeah, exactly. No, it, it definitely could be uh, a member of the um, Shadows. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, so for me, yeah, I love Possessor. Um, I I don't have a problem with calling it sci-fi first, but I definitely think there's plenty of horror elements to it. I think as far as the writing goes, I think the writing's done in a very minimalist approach. It's not a dialogue-heavy driven movie. It's it's more the actions and the imagery and what's going on. Um, I think there's an element of horror to our main character, which hint, little hints are dropped in a couple places in the movie, which we'll get into in spoilers, because I think that I think what most people are going to be talking about when they watch this movie is obviously the kills and the gore, because there's plenty of it. It's very visceral. It's very like guttural style kills. But to me, what this movie ultimately is really about is um, identity, self identity coming to terms with uh oneself and i think 
and it does that in a roundabout way. And I think that's the type of thing that it could take a couple of watches to pick up on because on a first time watch, I mean, you're just so captivated by the kills. <laughs> it's hard not to be in the style that they're done in this movie. Um, they're, you know, it's, it's very graphic and that's like a staple. I mean, that's, so it looks like it's going to be second generation Cronenberg stuff taken over <laughs> from his father. So that's to be expected with a Cronenberg. But I think where my appreciation for the movie came in was really the examination, the just the themes of identity and, you know, kind of living a double life. And there we'll get it. Like I said, I can't do it too much because i don't want to spoil but i thought that was done in a brilliant way and it's another thing where it's not we don't get it through dialogue so much as the main characters reactions to things or should i say lack of reactions to certain events in the movie especially and there's two main spots because i've only watched it once so there could be like more but there's two main things that i'll point to once we get into spoilers but I really like this. I, you know, I, I have tried, I went into it trying to lower my expectations because I heard a lot of good things about it. And you know how that goes where you're like, you're all hyped up for something. But to me, this lived up to the hype. Um, I had a blast with it. I, I can't wait to watch it again because I know there's in this style of movie, there's, there's bound to be things I missed the first time, even loving it so much. But anyways, high recommend for me and uh, I'm ready to dig into this one. Yeah, I really, I, I love how, and you kind of, you kind of um, alluded to it, but yeah, I, I kind of walking out of this movie, I definitely felt like the main theme was false or manufactured identities because pretty much everyone in this movie is a liar other than Michael. I mean, because even Ira, the little kid, is kind of not really lying, but he's very standoffish in a certain scene later in the film. So, I mean, there's definitely that theme of identity and manufactured identities. And I love that, especially as these assassins. It's, I mean, obviously, we only meet one early. Um, you know, we end up meeting a second later. That's kind of a twist, but we'll get to that. But... Um, I would have liked to have seen a little bit more of the lab. I would have liked to have seen maybe other assassins other than Tasia. Like, is she the only one in their employ, or are there others? I mean, maybe they're saving that for a sequel. Who knows? Um, but it, it definitely, uh, like Mike was saying, that th this definitely is not a exposition-driven movie. We're, we're not constantly given explanations to everything that we're seeing. And sometimes... Um, you know, movies that make you think are an experience in and of themselves. I understand that there's going to be a lot of horror fans that are going to be turned off by a movie like this. Um, you know, I'm not trying to insult anyone by any stretch, but this is a very cerebral movie. It's not a movie that you can turn off, turn your brain off and just enjoy it at face value because the face value is like the smallest value of this movie. It's everything underneath that gives this movie substance, all the commentary, even stuff that's not discussed in the movie, like um, some of the ethical ramifications of just doing what they do. I mean, you know, because you're, you're possessing somebody to commit a crime, but then you're also killing that person. So you got to make sure that you're doing a lot of, or that's the plan anyway. Um, you have to make sure that yeah, you're doing I, the I research. Thought, uh, uh, what's that? 
So I was just gonna say, I feel like a movie like this, the the blood and the kills and the graphicness is kind of like the red meat. No, no pun intended there. Sure. It, you know, that's that's what is done to, in you know in a shocking nature. But even if all that stuff wasn't in there, the general underlying themes of this movie, which is really what put the smile on my face at the end, that stuff would all still be there anyway. So I think. Mm-hmm this movie goes about multiple ways of really getting things across. And I, yeah, I was very pleased. And I can also, there, there it sounds like um, I'm flip flopping, but it, I can also kind of understand why Don made the point about the writing, how he doesn't feel that it's that good because I will admit there are multiple times in the movie when they introduce a theme and then they never come back to it. Uh, there's a scene in the movie that shows that mother and son are very similar, but they never go back to that. They never kind of explore the whole, you know, is this hereditary? Is this, you know, is the boy, her son, Ira, you know, going to be potentially a good candidate to do this job later on? There's one scene in the movie that's a very playful scene that you might miss if you're not even paying attention. That kind of shows that, uh-oh. Junior is kind of on the same path as mom, but we'll go, you know, we'll go into that a little bit later. Um, There's other themes like the whole thing with her being a man and having sex, like watching that scene. We know that it's not the first time she's done that. I mean, she's just way too good at it. Um, But it also is hard to pinpoint if she's enjoying it or if she's doing it just as a, like a, maybe a final apology to the woman, Ava, like, oh, I'm sorry for what I'm about to do here. Let me give you one good fuck to, you know, before, before I got to do what I got to do. Um, you know, they never really explore that, that theme. Does she enjoy I always, being a man? I always took, I always took it as just her trying to keep her cover that she's actually inside the guy's body. Like she has to screw the girl. Yes, exactly. But then we get, we get the scenes, we get the kind of, fading in and out where sometimes we see Colin, but then in that one shot we saw, uh, we saw Vaz, but with a penis. So it's like, what does that imply? Does she enjoy being a man? Does she enjoy having a penis? There's another scene later on involving a penis uh, that kind of, again, kind of explores that theme, but it's never really um, completed, if you will. It never comes to any kind of culmination. It's just kind of left dangling. And there's a couple of themes like that throughout the movie that are left kind of dangling. Personally, dangling penis. (laughs) Get it? Um, I make jokes even when I'm not trying to. Go figure. Um, but yeah, I can see why the the writing would be frustrating to some people because they do introduce some things and then they just leave them and never revisit them. But for my money, me personally, they were things that I didn't necessarily need full explanations on. Yes, I would have liked to have gotten a little bit more from her about how she feels about being a man. Is it the same thing to her? Does she not care? Is she, you know, uh, you know, little things like that. So, yes, the story could have been expanded on, but the movie's already an hour and 45 minutes. And I personally, and it sounds like Mike as well, you know, we got everything that we needed from the movie. Is there more they could have provided to us as the viewer? Absolutely there is. Was it absolutely necessary for me to put the stamp of good movie on this film? I don't think so. I I like the movie as it was presented to us. I like the little bits of ambiguity that we get throughout. 
and any plot holes I, I can easily fill in myself and be fairly satisfied with my you know my my plot hole plugs so um ultimately i walked away from this movie after watching it twice in three days very satisfied with almost every aspect of it not really a whole lot that I could say that would improve this movie. Because like I said, if they expand on the story, then we're talking two plus hours. And it seems like in 2020, nobody wants to watch a two plus hour horror film, even if it's good. <laughs> it was like, it, 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 I, it, I would it, still be interested. Like if there, mm-hmm. I was going to say, if there is a director's cut, I, I would be interested just to see like what exactly got cut. I think the version, yeah, I think the, the version known as uncut, I think, is the director's cut. Yeah, the version that we saw is the director's cut. Yeah. So there are uh, two cuts. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, obviously, with okay. some of the brutality... I didn't, I didn't the, realize that that's the one we saw. Yeah, yeah, that was the uncut. It's even in the title, if you look it up in some places, it actually says Possessor Uncut. Um, but yeah, I mean, the brutality of those kills, it's pretty obvious there had to be like a rated R version. Because uh, the uncut version, I don't think, would ever play in theaters, in American theaters. I mean, maybe in some indies here and there, but no way you're going to see a movie this brutal at AMC or at Regal. So they'd have to do a more a more appropriate the- theatrical version to release this. And it seems like they prepared for that. But obviously with the pandemic, who knows where you can even see the cut version of the film. I would imagine it'll be on the Blu-ray when it comes out, um, blah, blah, blah. So... Um, uh, what do you say, boys? Want to jump into the walkthrough? Works for me. All right. <laughs> All right. So our movie opens up with a young black woman. Um, she's seen looking into the mirror, and she looks like she's implanting some kind of rod or diode or something into a hole that's been pre-drilled into her head. Uh, She then reaches for this little machine that has a large dial on it, and she turns the dial, and instantly she starts to laugh. Just out of nowhere, she just laughs out loud, smiles, blah, blah, blah. Then she's seen turning the dial again, and instantly she starts to cry. Just out of nowhere, just starts crying and everything. So, you know, um, obviously they're already kind of planting thoughts in our head as to what this woman is doing and is she in control or is someone else in control of her blah 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 so we already got themes thrown in our head we then see the woman uh, go to an event at a large upscale restaurant really fancy nice bar dining room area and then it's revealed that she's actually part of the wait staff her name is holly um, uh, as she shows up to the event, there are other people, uh, other women there, young, good-looking women in the same uh, blue uniform that Holly is wearing. And you can tell that Holly just doesn't want to be there. Um, one girl uh, even gives her the instruction of make sure you're friendly to all the higher-ups, make sure you kiss them on the cheek when you greet them, blah, 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 and you know, which instantly kind of turns Holly off. Um, Holly is then seen going into the event. We see all these people very well-dressed, drinking champagne, blah, blah, blah. Out of nowhere, Holly sees a table of steak knives, and basically she grabs one. And without hesitation, she just walks up to this one heavyset gentleman and just stabs him right in the throat. And then this is the first of our very brutal kills, and I did count 
how many times she stabbed the man, including the first stab to the neck. She stabbed him 21 times, and we see and hear all 21 stabs. It's a, it's a very, very brutal kill. At that point, once she's done, yes. uh, once she's done killing her target, uh, she pulls out a gun out of her pocket, and then she says out loud, pull me out. Um, at that moment, she takes the gun and she puts it in her mouth as in she as like she's about to commit suicide. But then she can't bring herself to pull the trigger. Um, you know, she just can't do it no matter what. Uh, she, for whatever reason, it's not fully explained to us right away. But for whatever reason, she is unable to commit suicide. But luckily for her. Just as she realizes that she is not able to pull the trigger, the police show up and they are all, of course, armed to the teeth. And basically they tell her, drop your weapon. And Holly decides to commit suicide by cop. Uh, and obviously all you need to do is raise your gun and point it at the cops and they will open fire and kill every living thing in sight. So I, they probably are L.A. cops. I don't know. But um and then even even after they thoroughly kill the assassin, one of the cops walks up to her and puts one more right in her fucking forehead, which really doesn't seem like police yeah. protocol, but whatever. Um, who knows? Maybe that cop is another assassin that isn't established. I don't know. Uh, but the point is, yeah, once Holly, uh, once Holly takes that final shot to the head, um... We see it is these... worth questioning because because of events later in the movie that make you think like like now in retrospectively you're like yeah there's a chance that there could have been another assassin in that opening scene too oh sure I mean you know after you watch it a few times you start to think of wacky ideas and yeah that's definitely one of them so anyway. Once Holly has been killed by the police, we then are taken to a lab where we see a very pale white woman, almost uh, Tilda Swinton pale, uh, basically wake up from a procedure. Um, and uh, she's uh, this woman is basically uh, given the confirmation that her target is dead. There are no vital signs and the job is complete. At that point, we get the title card. Which, I, if you've seen the poster, you know that yellow is a very prominent color in this movie. Um, so we get our yellow title card, and then we go to what looks like a post-hit, um, like, about mental evaluation. Because obviously, um, you know, it's already been established that this woman, who, as I said earlier, her name is Tasia Vaz, um, is an assassin who possesses people to commit the assassinations, obviously distancing her from the crime, blah, blah, blah. Um, let's see. So we see her in a therapy session where she's, um, she, she's given a box full of possessions, um, uh, random items, a pipe, like, you know, an old um, smoking pipe, um, a mounted butterfly, some pieces of tubing, just a bunch of random stuff. And then uh, basically the therapist, who's named Gerder, G-I-R-D-E-R, Gerder, uh, who is also played brilliantly by Jennifer Jason Lee, um, almost didn't recognize her right away until she started to talk. 
as soon as I heard her voice, I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, that is Jennifer Jason Lee. And, of course, I do remember seeing her in that Amityville movie recently. It was either 2019 or 2018. Uh, Amityville Awakening, I believe it was. Uh, she was in that one, too. So uh, she is easily recognizable now. So that's good. Um, so basically, uh, she's grabbing all the items. Uh, she picks up the pipe and says, this is my grandfather's pipe. I never met my grandfather because he died before I was born, but my father gave me his pipe as a remembrance. Um, then she goes on to the next item, which is a small wooden box with a mounted uh, butterfly inside, like a dead mounted butterfly, like you, like you might see on like a cork board of a science room, something like that. And she describes mm -hmm. the butterfly. Uh, she talks about how when she was a child, she saw the butterfly and wanted to keep it. So she actually killed it and mounted it herself. And then she ends that um, description with, I, I, I remember always feeling guilty about killing the butterfly. I still do to this day. Remember that line, folks. That line is kind of important later on at the end of the movie, but we'll get to that. Remember, she feels guilt for killing a butterfly. Okay, and then the last item she pulls out looks like it's just a couple of pieces of, like, tubing. Um, she claims that she doesn't recognize them. She doesn't think that those belong to her. And then um, Gerger, the therapist, Jennifer Jason Lee, basically says, good, uh, you passed the test, no problem. Um, so basically, this is a test. I, I assume this is a test to make sure that the mental stability of the assassin is still there after performing a job, because it, it does not look like an easy thing to do. Even when the job goes right, it looks like you're going to be dealing with a lot of like mental wrestling with your host mind and you know, or other more things. than likely the trauma of actually having to kill yourself. Oh, yeah, there's that, too. I mean, constantly having to kill yourself at the end of every job. You know, especially for someone, because there's one character in the movie that actually says, no, I'm a Christian. I couldn't possibly do that. Um, and that's kind of funny, because what happens if they uh, they possess someone who is an ultra Christian and would never kill themselves? You know, you could see kind of the mental tug of war going on there. So that's, you know, once again, that's kind of cool. Anyway. Well, and that's kind of like the, the bitch of it all, too, is like the... The host, the uh, host that they take over, isn't the actual target, but nope. it seems like in almost every one of these instances, the host is going to end up dying as well. So it's not only the fact that they're, you know, they're just taking upon themselves to, oh, well, our high price clients want to kill this person, but we're uh, in essence killing a second person to get the job done. Exactly. That's why it, it seems like they do make an effort to try to find people. Um, because in our next, you know, job, which we'll get to here in a little bit, they actually make it a point that the host isn't a very good person. He's a former drug dealer. Um, he's been tied to crimes in the past, blah, blah, blah. Um, he's still an alcoholic, you know, just, but, you know, it, it seems like they're purposely doing their due diligence to make sure that no hundred percent innocent people are being taken out. So it's the kind of thing where, um, not a lot of people are going to cry for the uh, the possessed person dying as well. So, um, you know, I'll give them credit for that at least. It's not like it's not like they're possessing Catholic priests or altar boys or somebody who's like ultra ultra innocent and then offing them at the end too. So, for whatever it's worth, I'll give them some credit for that. Okay, so 
Um, we're done with the test. Like I said, Gerner lets Vaz know that uh, everything is fine with the test. You seem okay. At that point, Vaz asks for some time off. Um, you know, she just wants to take some time off before the next job. The, um, the therapist asks her, or Gerner asks her why exactly, and she starts to explain that, you know, I was talking to Michael. Uh, Michael is her husband, by the way. Uh, you know, I, I wanted to talk to Michael and see if we could get some time off together, blah, blah, blah. But then Gerder reminds her that Michael and her are actually separated. They're not living together. And it looks like she genuinely forgot that fact because instantly she stops talking about asking for time off and blah, blah, blah. You know, it, she basically remembers, oh, yeah, we're separated. Shit. Um, so then she kind of abandons that topic. And, um, you know, that's pretty much the, the scene pretty much ends right there. Uh, so the next scene, we see Vaz going to Michael's house, her husband and son's house. And while she's walking towards the house, she's actually rehearsing lines. Uh, and this, again, points towards the whole manufactured identity thing. She has to practice lines that a normal person would say like she's actually practicing oh yes i'm i'm starving i'd love to eat something you know basic lines like that that maybe don't flow out of her mouth as easily anymore um and literally within five seconds of michael answering the door she is able to use one of those rehearsed lines and it sounds very genuine if you didn't see the scene with her rehearsing the lines you can tell you know that she's um, you know, trying to be as genuine as possible with her husband. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, they sit down at the dinner table and um, and then Vaz basically lies about where she was. Like the, the husband or the separated husband, Michael, asks her, how was your trip? And she basically goes, oh, it was uneventful, boring, blah, blah, blah. So it seems pretty obvious that Michael is unaware of what Vaz actually does for a living. Um, let's see. Uh, they sit down to dinner. Yeah. And like I said, so again, we we, we get our first inclination. Yeah, we're, Vaz we're, is we're basically getting our, yeah, ex <laughs> exactly. We're getting our first hint that. With, with the identity issues coming in where obviously she has a i don't know if it's a ex-husband or at least the father of her child um where it seems like you know and it's not like she's rehearsing some big speech to give to him it's just like this is a, any old line that a, a normal person would just say <laughs> like so right off the bat we're like okay that seems kind of weird yeah exactly so um uh, so after dinner, um, it turns out that Vaz and Michael actually ho are hosting a dinner party that evening. Uh, there's a few friends over. Um, and then we see, I, I guess the only reason that they have this dinner party is to show Vaz eating her apple. They establish that Vaz eats her apples a certain way. She, basically, she wedges them. Uh, she cuts wedges out of the apples and then eats the wedges. Um, that's literally the only thing I can take out of that scene because there's no great conversation going on. Michael's talking about his job, which sounds dull as shit. Um, you know, the other people at the party are talking about work, too. Vaz is, like, barely there. Um, they end up having sex that evening, and as they show Vaz, and she looks just very bored. She's not into the sex at all. It doesn't even look like she's physically there or mentally there excuse me i got the hiccups folks <clears throat> excuse me 
Anyway, uh, so yeah, like it feels I said, like it feels like she's basically doing what I mean. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but it's almost like she's doing what she does at her job in her own life too, playing a role. Oh yeah, oh absolutely. Atasia Vaz is not a happy mother and wife by any stretch. Um, again, manufactured identity. She wants to be that person, but because she has a certain set of skills, uh, you know, she obviously has. She has to be a different person for her employers. So yeah, again, you know, false um, identities all over the place here. Um, about halfway through the sex, though, Vaz realizes that she's just laying there doing nothing, and then she actually does start getting into it, kissing Michael on the neck, blah, 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 at least pretending that she's enjoying the sex. And then right after, right after the sex is over, uh, they show her kind of grab her right arm uh, like it's hurting or giving her some kind of trouble. Uh, this is one of those themes that they kind of abandon throughout the movie because multiple times throughout the movie we'll see her grabbing her right hand because it hurts for some reason. Um, obviously, we can chalk it up to the, men the, the mental fracturing that's going on in her head, but I would have liked to have seen a little bit more parallels with, you know, either another job or, you know, is there a reason that her arm hurts? You know, like maybe Holly got stabbed in the arm, you know, while she was killing the guy in the opening scene. I would have liked to have seen something like that, but they just kind of leave it hanging. So, you know, not a big deal. Um, but they're obviously showing that her, her mind is fracturing and that's basically um, manifesting physical issues with her. Like she actually feels some pain that she shouldn't be feeling. So, you know, take that as you will, blah, blah, blah. So, um, after the sex, uh, Michael speaks to Vaz. Um, he's speaking to her about her moving back into the house. Uh, but unfortunately, all Vaz can see is the neck wound that she gave to the guy at the, at the party in the opening scene. She basically stabs him right in the neck and pulls the knife out so that it just starts gushing blood. Um, as Michael is speaking to her, it looks like Michael has that wound on his neck. So again, Vaz... Vaz is cracking up, and it's just, you know, happening very slowly in front of us. Um, let's see, where am I? Uh, so after that scene ends, um, we go back to another therapy session at the lab where Gerder is talking to Vaz, and she's asking her, why did you decide to stab uh, the target at the dinner party? We provided you with a gun. Um, Vaz doesn't really give a clear answer. I think she says something along the lines of it felt like it was the right thing to do, or it felt natural, something along those lines. So, so, you know, Vaz is even an assassin going against her boss, her, her boss's wishes. You know, they give her the gun so that she can kill her target quickly and then kill herself quickly and, you know, just get the job done as quickly as possible. But she purposely, and she'll do it as the movie goes along too, where she is provided with a gun, but then still decides to kill people in a different way. You can say that that's her. Uh, another theory that I have is that that's part of the host mind bleeding through because think about it. The way that Holly killed the fat guy in the opening scene, she knows who that guy is, and she has genuine hate for that person. That wasn't Vaz deciding to stab this guy 21 times. 
I think that it was Holly bleeding through and her hate was manifesting through Vaz and that's why she stabbed the fucker 21 times. Just the theory. I could be wrong. Who knows? Uh, but there's another scene later on again where I'll kind of hark back to this because she does the exact same thing but in a different host body. We'll get to that in a little bit here. So, uh, let's see. So, um, like I said, Vaz is kind of standoffish about the question of why she stabs and didn't shoot with a provided gun. Um, Gerner just kind of blows it off for now and then starts talking to her about her new target. Um, the name of the person that she's going to be possessing next is Colin Tate. He is the boyfriend of Ava Percy, who is the daughter of John Percy. And John is the main target. Um, John Percy is uh, he's basically an industrialist douchebag who's, you know, only thinks about himself and doesn't really think about the well-being of others, the general public, his constituents, blah, blah, blah. Um, but then they also let Vaz know that you're going to have to take Ava out, too, because based on the research that they've done, if Ava just takes over the company, she's just going to be just like her father. Even though Ava physically hates her father, she still kind of respects him. And, you know, even though she'll talk shit about him behind his back to, to her boyfriend, Colin, you can still tell that there's a certain level of respect, that she kind of respects how much of a fucking douchebag he really is. So... Since since the organization has the fear that she might take over and be just as bad as her dad, uh, they let Vaz know that they are both targets. You need to kill John Parsi and Ava Parsi. So uh, they give her some uh, uh, the people at the lab, the techs basically are giving Vaz some basic information about the job, about the uh, people, uh, specifically about Colin and the fact that he has like certain conditions that she has to make sure that she's aware of. Like uh, they tell him that he has IBS, um, irritable bowel syndrome for anybody who doesn't know, uh, which is causing him pain in his lower right abdomen. So that's something, you know, fairly common pain, like frequent. So, you know, that's the kind of information somebody who's pretending to be someone else probably needs. Uh, they also give him his schedule and they let him they let Vaz know that he's going to be that they're going to be sending him in a day and a half before when they want the target taken out. So it almost seems like they purposely give Vaz like an entire day to just kind of get acclimated with their new body, um, you know, so that she doesn't have to just wake up in a new body and then go kill somebody right away. So she at least has a full day to kind of, you know, get her bearings and every, everything else. But before they do the process, before they do what's called the binding process, um, well, the last thing that's said to Vaz before uh, this scene ends is from one of the binding techs who tells Vaz, don't forget to shoot yourself at the end. And, and Vaz actually gets offended. Like, she actually says, what the fuck did you mean by that? And honestly, I think anybody who heard that statement knows exactly what the fuck he means by that. You're a little bitch who can't bring yourself to finish what you started. And, you know, you need to kill yourself. You know, this is like their common way of getting out of the host body and back into their body is by committing suicide. So I, I found it kind of funny that she took offense to that, even though it's already been established that she can't seem to pull the trigger. So, yeah, kind of comical there, but whatever. All right. So, um, 
after this is when we get a really cool set piece and we're not actually we're not seeing the actual binding process what we're seeing is a metaphor for the binding and what they're showing us is they're basically showing us two the the visages of two people made out of plastic they look like plastic dolls and basically they slowly start to melt they start to melt away and then a few minutes, not even a few minutes, like a few seconds after that, we the, we then see the melted plastic start to reform. And basically what we're seeing is two plastic dolls melting, and then when they reform, they reform into one. So, you know, we're not seeing the actual binding process so much as we're seeing a cinematic metaphor. And I'm very okay with it, because some of the most haunting images in the movie are in this sequence. I thought it looked really, really cool. Um, especially once you understood what was going on, that there was two plastic people melting and then reforming into one. I thought that was a, a nice little metaphor. So um, the next day, uh, oh, I forgot to mention that before uh, the binding process took place, um, you need to kidnap uh, the person that you're going to possess. You need to kidnap them and then implant them with some kind of almost like the Matrix style whole uh, connector in their head so that later on, because you remember from the opening scene, uh, we saw Holly putting something in her head and then adjusting dials. Um, so be, uh, where are we? So yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, after that, basically they kidnap Colin, they prep him for the binding. We don't see the prep. We don't know what it entails, which is fine. And then uh, we see Vaz basically loaded into the binding machine. And then the next thing we know, we see Colin in bed. And um, he's basically waking up for the first time that morning. And um, uh, th this is one of the things that I really like that Cronenberg did here, is whenever Ava enters a new body, the lighting is off. Uh, I'm sure you guys noticed how red the lighting was when she first woke up. Later on, there's another scene um, where uh, the sex scene, actually, where they're actually having sex and it's all blue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, <laughs> basically, Cronenberg is using different lighting types to kind of infer that, you know, the person that we're seeing isn't actually the person that we're seeing. We're looking at Colin, but uh, but um, Vaz, Tasia Vaz, has full mental control of the body. Um, and... Uh, so basically, uh, after she gets up, she walks around, kind of gets her bearings, you know, uh, checks out the apartment, you know, makes her, her mental image of the whole apartment so she knows where everything is. And then we get kind of a funny little scene where she goes to the bathroom and um, Colin pulls out his penis and starts playing hmm. with it. When I say playing with it, I don't mean masturbate. I mean, literally fiddling with it, like almost like it's the first time she's been put inside of a man and she's just like, whoa, what is this thing dangling between my legs? You know, so it, it, it's kind of funny, but kind of weird at the same time, because she does pull the penis right out, which is you know never comfortable for us guys watching horror movies. But yeah, there it is. Just Colin's dick just flopping around in the wind while Ava is like feeling it up and like, I, I don't know what the hell she's doing. Um, but then I thought about it and it's like, you know what, at my age, if I woke up in the body of a woman one day, yeah, 
I think it would take a total of 20 seconds before my hand was down there. So, yeah, I, I, I feel for her. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, so anyway, um, after that scene in the bathroom, Ava wakes up. Uh, beautiful Ava, by the way. She's butt naked. Beautiful girl. Uh, basically wakes up, and Vaz, uh, Vaz as Colin basically starts talking to her like real sweetly, like, you know, how did everything go yesterday? Um, oh, I'm sorry. I got home late. I couldn't get a flight home when I wanted to. That's when he got kidnapped, by the way. Uh, he was kidnapped on the way to the airport. They probably did whatever they needed to do to him and then stuck him on a later flight home. So blah, blah, blah. There you go. Um, and then uh, we, uh, Ava makes the comment that Colin isn't acting like himself today. She's like, wow, what's up? Well, you're in such a good mood. What's going on? Because it's not Colin. Of course, as the viewer, we know this, but, you know, Ava's kind of trying to put the pieces together there. Then we see Colin start to eat an apple and guess how he eats it. He eats it exactly like Vaz does. He wedges the apple, you know, he cuts out a wedge and then eats that wedge. Um, so again, it's almost like, it's almost like um, she wasn't thinking about that because she should not be eating an apple like herself when she's in someone else's body. Like I was convinced that Ava was going to say something like, you never eat apples in the morning or something like that, but it, that never happens. So, okay, we can go by that. Um, this is also where we get the first appearance of this odd little pulsating, like white puffball. It's, it's tiny, tiny. You could pick it up with just your two fingers. It's just, you know, it's like free floating and, um, it, it looks like a little white booger, almost like a little booger or a little tiny piece of cotton, just kind of pulsating. Uh, it looks like a miniature maggot. Yeah, I'll go with that. Yeah, it, it definitely looks alive. <laughs> it's pulsating. Um, it, it even looks like it might be trying to move on its own, blah, 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 like like actually walk, travel. Um, the first time that Colin sees it, he goes to grab it. He grabs it with his two fingers. But then when he opens his fingers, there's nothing there. It's gone. Uh, my theory is, is that is the first sign of Colin... Uh, the real Colin, uh, the Colin that's being suppressed right now in his own mind, kind of starting to realize, hey, there's something wrong. Like, I don't, you know, I don't feel like I have control or, you know, something. Like I said, it's just my theory. Mm. Yeah, um, see, I had a, I had a mm-hmm. different thought. I thought it was more the signs of the stress taking the toll on her, seeing things that it's not there. Like, that was one of the first symptoms that maybe she's not equipped to do this, that it's the PTSD from doing this so many times that it's just manifesting itself as this strange little object that she thinks she sees. Yeah, that's valid too. Absolutely. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I think mm-hmm. I, I think they're definitely throughout the movie they're probably saying like, you know, the more you participate in it, you, it wears your mind down, probably body too. You start to bring relics of different missions back with you just because it's a strain. I mean, because I think there's even one point um, I can't remember if Jennifer Jason Lee's character said it early in the film, but I thought she alluded to like that she used to do it and she can't take it anymore. Yeah, yeah, she act, and, and that was one of the things that was um kind of upsetting me about her character early on, especially during that first um post um assassination session, 
it seemed like she was just being an administrator, maybe someone who had never done the job before, because, you know, she was kind of pushing um, Vaz to kind of, you know, do the next job. She's like, yeah, we're almost ready for the next one. We're just getting the final pieces together. And that's when Vaz asks for time off. So I, I started to dislike Gerder's character right there. But then as we go through the movie, it is implied that Gerder is a former assassin who's now, well, you know. When it, when, I've seen enough movies that when it, when it has to do with like uh, a highly techni- te- technological corporation with unlimited funds that work for high-paying clients and never trust the hierarchy of the company. <laughs> Duh! That's, that's your yeah. life right there. What the fuck are you talking about? That's not yeah. even a movie. <laughs> anyway, okay, so... Um, after the puffball disappears uh, in Colin's kitchen, Colin is then seen going to work. Uh, we didn't mention earlier during Colin's backstory, but Colin actually works for John Parsi, who is, of course, his target. And he's dating Ava Parsi, who is the daughter of John and his girlfriend. So, yeah, just an awesome, awesome love triangle here. Or a hate triangle, actually, would be the better way to put it. Um, so, anyway, Colin is seen going to work now. I have no fucking idea what this guy does for a living. Let me describe what they show you in the movie. So Colin goes into work and he goes and checks in with like a shift supervisor. That supervisor tells him, okay, today you're on curtains and blinds. That's all she says. And then Colin walks away. When Colin gets to his workstation, it's basically just a bench with a whole bunch of workers and they've all got VR goggles on. Uh, He sits down at his desk. Oh, uh, before he sits down at his desk, I'm sorry. When he's on his way to his desk, he meets up with his friend, Eddie. Uh, Eddie is established as being one of Colin's older friends at the company. You know, they they, they talk a little bit about some shady, nefarious shit that they do with women when they're on the road, blah, blah, blah. Um, But it's a quick conversation. It's really just to establish Eddie's character because we will see him again later. So. When, when Colin finally gets to his workstation, he sits down and he puts on a set of VR glasses and then he virtually sees various rooms in Lord knows where they are. They're just rooms in somebody's house somewhere. And he basically just is charged with describing the blinds and or curtains that they have in the bedroom. So, you know, in the very first bedroom, he says brown curtains, standard rod and he says this out loud, like someone's listening. He doesn't have a microphone necessarily on the VR goggles, but he's saying all this out loud like it's being recorded. So what the fuck does this guy do for a living? I don't know. Your guess is as good as mine. I, I'm glad you were confused because, like, that's one. I remember about 15 or so minutes, like, past that point in the movie, I was like, should I rewind it? Because I... I saw what he was doing, but I don't know exactly what he's doing. The only thing I can think of, because I tried to think about it, was like, is this just some a case where, you know, future technology where everyone's webcams are like actually spying on their own living space and it's all for like, you know, advertising purposes? Like, oh, what type of yeah, thing that's where I was... have, does that have? And yeah, that was where that I was... Yeah. That really doesn't make sense, though, because why but, would you pay a team of people to do this? But see, I was looking at it more as, like, market research. Like, what's the actual, like, layout of the house going to be to where they 
can then manufacture items that would be popular selling, like how they would actually, like how many couples actually use it? I mean, I guess it just seems I mean, yeah, but, really odd that they're paying. But, and this ain't a minimum wage job because, you know, Ava and um, Ava and Colin live in a pretty decent apartment. Granted, Ava might be paying for the majority of it. But the point is, it doesn't look like it's a minimum wage job. Like these are all people that look like they're skilled, educated and, you and know, highly unethical <laughs> and, and highly unethical. Yeah, because we haven't even gotten to that part yet. Um Basically, Colin goes through a couple of different rooms describing the curtains and or blinds that he sees. Uh, there's one instance where he sees a baby's room and there's nothing in the windows. He basically says, you know, uh, undeterminable, something like that. But then we get to the voyeurism. Uh, the very next room that he looks at, we see two very naked people. And I'm talking a girl on a bed spread eagle with a shaved vagina in an R-rated movie, yeah, buddy, that's what we're that's what we're looking forward to, uh, and then of course the guy, rock hard erection, just right in front of the fucking camera, like it's the focus of the shot. It's upsetting. <laughs> there's there's way more penis in this movie than makes me comfortable. Let's let's just say that. Um, so anyway, um, when when Colin sees that these two people are butt naked and literally about to fuck. Um, he kind of hesitates, like he doesn't look at the curtains. I, I don't know if he's fixated on the sex, like he's aroused, or if it's just maybe a shock. Maybe it's the first time he's seen naked people on one of his feeds. I don't know. But he basically stops his job and just watches these people have sex for like 30 seconds or so. And then we hear a voice, the voice of the supervisor that he spoke to earlier, basically saying, Tate, what's wrong? You're moving at a snail's pace. And then he comes, you know, he comes up with just some bullshit excuse, you know, why he's going slow, blah, blah, blah. And then he goes back to his job. He actually describes the curtains in the room while the people are on the bed fucking right in front of the uh, camera. So, yeah, it's a very odd scene. And I don't know what the hell this guy does for a living. And I will never know. I'm not going to I'm not going to waste too much brain power on it. But, yeah, there it is. That's what he does for a living. So. Uh, basically, what happens is um, as he's doing his job, he starts having these weird mental fractures where he starts seeing memories that aren't his. Um, and whose memories are they? Of course, they are vases. He's basically seeing like images of previous hits. Um, he's seeing images of Michael and Ira, you know, Vaz's husband and son. Random stuff like that. And then out of nowhere, he just violently pulls the VR goggles off his head and then he passes out. And this is where we get the second appearance of the pulsating puffball. But this time, the only difference is that when he goes to grab it and he opens his fingers, it didn't disappear. This time it stays there, which, again, kind of makes me feel like he's getting worse. Like the first time he saw the puffball, it disappeared. Now he sees it and it stays right there in his hand. And, you know, he starts thinking, obviously, you know, what's going on, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah. So that's the second appearance of our pulsating puffball, as I like to call it. Um, so we see Colin continue to have a mental break. Images are flashing in his in his head. Um, he see, Like I said, he sees Vaz and her family and the flashing images. Uh, and then we see Colin just laying on the floor, eyes open, conscious, but just laying on the floor, not doing anything. And then we hear Girder's voice. 
Um, Gerger is actually at the lab speaking to Vaz, who is in the machine. But um, because Vaz is, um, has taken over Colin, Colin is replying in, in the real world as well. Like he's replying to Gerger's basically having a conversation over Lord knows how many miles apart. Uh, Gerger uh, speaks to Vaz about the abnormality or the anomaly and asks, is there anything wrong? What happened? Like your levels spiked out of nowhere. Um, Vaz slash Colin plays it off and just says, nah, everything is fine. Everything is in order and we are on schedule, blah, blah, blah. Uh, we then see Colin, uh, Colin, mind you, walking to Michael's house. So obviously it's Vaz inside of Colin's body. But like I said, because of the emergence of the puffball and because of all these, you know, these little mental episodes that he's having, it's it's implied that Colin is slowly regaining control of his body. It's not all Vaz anymore. Now it's kind of like a I don't know what the percentage of a mix would be, but it's definitely not all Vaz anymore. Colin is starting to uh, understand um maybe not understand what's going on, but know that there is something going on and that there may be someone else dwelling inside of his head. Um, so like I said, we see Colin going to Michael's house while he's still having these flashbacks in his head of Michael and Ira, you know, uh, uh, through Vaz's eyes, of course. Um, let's see. Um, so after, after the blackout, after he visits Michael, uh, he ends up going back home to his apartment with Ava, and he's obviously late. Ava's like, what the hell happened? Why are you so late? I couldn't contact you. Colin apologizes because his cell, he had he left his cell phone at the office, and <clears throat> or he left it somewhere, and he basically lies to Ava and says, oh, I had to work a double tonight. They just sprung it on me. I'm sorry, the phone. You know, I'm sorry I didn't text you or tell you, blah, blah, blah. Uh, the reason that Ava is upset is because it looks like they are also hosting a dinner party that evening, as there are a few guests there. Um, and did you guys notice how just about everybody in this movie vapes? Yeah, that was really getting annoying because I thought it was like some <laughs> weird hiss on the thing. Yeah, it, but I mean, I thought it, it was like some, I'm saying is that I, I it took me a while to recognize it at first, but I thought it was like some weird hiss on the copy I got. Yeah, literally every adult in this movie vapes with varying degrees of fancy vape uh, vape machines. You know, some of them are just the stick. Some of them are the big box. It's really odd that everyone vape. I wonder if Cronenberg vapes in real life and just figured, ah, it's, it's real life. Fuck it, I'll throw it in. You know, it's kind of like the decision of making a character a smoker. Like sometimes I want to know what's the mentality of making a certain character a smoker I, I would love to find out what his mentality was by well, making everyone well, in this have, movie vape. <laughs> there, was that, there was that old joke I remember. They said that the cigarette was the greatest um, set dressing in the world because yeah. you could do anything with it. I mean, I would imagine that you know this would be like the modern day equivalent, but I don't know if he would have known that, if Brandon would have known that. I mean, he, yeah, and like I said, like it, said it just, yeah, it, like mm -hmm. go ahead. I was just going to say, um, Brandon doesn't really make it a plot point. Like, no one ever mentions it. It's just, it's most obvious at the at the dinner party, because literally everyone has their own vape, and they're all right. vaping, or right before doing a bunch of right, blow. That's right, that's <laughs> where, right, that's where, like, I was kind of like, wait, is Mike 
copy wrong, or did, did they have like a you know did I buy the wrong version or something? Yeah, exactly. So, um, so we're still at the little get together here. Um, uh, like I said, everyone is vaping. Uh, then Colin and Ava pull out some coke. They do a few lines. Um, uh, throughout the conversation, we hear how Ava's friends hate her father. How you know he's a piece of shit how they don't understand how Colin can work for him, especially in the department that he works in, because they even say it's like, it seems like a sweatshop down there, you know, and on top of the fact that having to work extra shifts, blah, blah, blah. So uh, the, uh, Eddie even makes a joke in the one scene where they met each other, where Eddie is like, oh yeah, looks like there's going to be some overtime this weekend on carpeting or something. I forget exactly what he said, but it was, it was another household item like curtains and blinds. Um, and he's like, oh, yeah, there might be overtime this weekend doing carpets and you're top of the list. So somebody obviously doesn't like you very much. And obviously it's already been established that, you know, the boss of the company is a little bit of an asshole. So it it, 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 it tracks correctly. Um, after Colin and Ava do some blow and the friends have some conversation, we then meet Rita. Rita is a very independent and crass woman. You know, she doesn't. You know, she doesn't edit herself at all. She talks about how she masturbates in front of a webcam when, as soon as she gets home from work, blah, blah, blah. Um, later, late in the, in the very next scene, Colin is seen in the bathroom washing his hands. And Rita just walks into the bathroom while he's in there. No big deal. Uh, but then Rita says something that I thought was kind of odd. She says to Colin, hey, uh, we should hang out again. I talked to Ava and she said it was cool. So I don't know if Rita and Colin had a previous relationship or something, or maybe he cheated on Ava. Uh, I would it imagine just... that in this thing, it was just more of a case of, yeah, fuck it. You know, nobody really, bo- you know, like infidelity is not really a thing. That's what it seems like. Yes, it seems like everybody's it in maybe like some type of open relationship. Yes. <clears throat> yeah. Exactly. So I mean that that could like. be it, but just the way that they treated it so nonchalantly that it just kind of took you by surprise. Um, but yeah, I, I'm fully okay with that being the point. So anyway, uh, Rita, like I said, she goes into the bathroom. She tells Colin, "Hey, we should hang out again." Ava thinks it's okay. Ava said it's okay, and then. Uh, Rita just drops her pants and sits on the toilet and takes a piss right in front of them. Like, maybe they did have some kind of established relationship. Because, let me tell you, my own wife doesn't pee in front of me. So, this girl is very open and promiscuous or whatever. So, good on Rita. Anyway. um, They basically, um, after everyone leaves the party... Ava and Colin just end up talking. Ava tells Colin, if you want to quit your job, you can. I totally would understand why you're not, you know, you don't deserve that kind of stress, blah, blah, blah. Colin basically says, no, I'm fine. I wouldn't do the job if I couldn't do it. Um, And then she insults her father and says, oh, I can't believe you can work for that asshole. And then he actually defends them at this point. He actually says, oh, John's a great man. And she's like, well, he's a great douchebag, but I don't know about great man. And, you know, Colin basically defends them a couple of times. They end up exchanging I love yous, and then they have sex. And then this is the sex scene that I alluded to earlier. The entire scene is shot in blue lighting. And like I said, the the scene starts out fairly normal. You see Colin and Ava going at it, you know, having intercourse, blah, blah, blah. 
Um, Ava starts to choke Colin. Colin does not protest. Uh, apparently, he likes to be choked. I don't know if that's Colin or Vaz, by the way, who likes to be choked. That's all up, uh, for interpretation. Um, and then we see an image where um, Colin kind of rear, like, kneels up on his knees. And then the camera pans, and it actually turns into Vaz. And then we see Vaz there, where Colin should be naked, but she has a penis. Yeah, she, I mean, she's got she's fully naked. Her breasts are out, but she has a penis between her legs. And then she goes right back to you know having intercourse with Ava. So this is where this is the scene that left me a little confused, like. Does she enjoy this? Is it a conquest to her? Does she actually find Ava attractive? Maybe there's some lesbian undertones there. Um, does she like the, the the power of being the man? Blah, blah, blah. And like I, I also mentioned earlier, this is definitely not the first time this has happened because she's not reacting, you know, um, the way somebody who's in a new gender body would act. I mean... Could you imagine what it's like? Like, we're all guys here. We Could you imagine what it would be like to actually wake up one day as a woman and then get penetrated? We have no idea what that feels like. And I think I'd freak out a little bit the first time. So obviously, I, I think personally that it's established that Ava's done this before. She's just way too good with a penis to have not done this before. So like I said, that's up to the viewer's interpretation, ultimately. Um... So let's see, after the, let's see, after the sex, um, we, uh, we see a scene where Colin is by himself and then Girder, um, Jennifer Jason Lee speaks to Colin, you know, from miles away at the lab and basically tells him that it's time to recalibrate. And what that is, is we then see Colin perform the exact same process that Holly did at the beginning of the movie, where he inserts that diode or, or connection into the hole in his head, and then he starts adjusting uh, a dial on the little machine that's connected to it. Now, when he does it, the reactions aren't as extreme as when Holly did it. Because remember I said when Holly turned the dial one way, she instantly started laughing. Then she turned the dial another way, and she instantly started crying. Colin doesn't necessarily go through this. We do see him adjusting the dials, but his personality or mood doesn't seem to be changing very much. So I don't know if maybe he's not doing it or Vaz isn't doing it correctly just to spite Gerder or whatever. But I mean, throughout the movie, we definitely see how um, Vaz is not being 100% truthful to Gerder. Um, not telling her about the pain in her arm, not telling her about the mental breaks, the fragmentation that's happening, all of that stuff. So, you know, again, Vaz is not the most honest person in the world to pretty much anybody, literally anyone, so including herself. So, yeah. So anyway, um, after Colin goes through this process, we then see Colin and Ava go to John Parsi's house. And it, of course, it is a big mansion. He's the owner of this big company that Colin and Ava both work for. And it's a dinner party. It looks like there's a... As uh, Ava and Colin enter the house, John is up on the at the top of the stairs giving a speech to all of his 
guests talking about how his job is boring because of how good everyone else is. All of his employees are so good that it leaves him with very little like fires to put out or, you know, situations to have to diffuse. So basically he's sucking the dick of everybody at his party. Blah, blah, blah. Um, uh, they meet John and instantly John starts talking down to Colin, talking about how, oh, I'm glad that you're working for me. Um, you know, let me know if the job is a little hard for you and maybe we can find something else for you. But it, it seems like it's an entry level position, like it's the, you know, it's the easiest job that he can offer him. He's talking down to Colin, obviously. He obviously doesn't like Colin uh, dating his daughter, living with his daughter. And, you know, the, he's not doing a very good job of keeping that secret. He's very, basically very open about how much he dislikes Colin. Uh, they end up walking away. Um, once again, Ava tells him, you know, I can't believe you work for him, blah, blah, blah. Uh, then after that, we hear Gerder's voice, and she basically tells Vaz what he has to do next, and what or Vaz slash Colin. Uh, basically, what Gerder needs Colin to do is to start a fight with John and then get kicked out of the party. It's got to be something very loud, very public that all the guests are aware of, that he turned violent. And got kicked out. And basically, he does this by walking up to John Parsi. Uh, by the way, who's played by Sean Bean. I haven't mentioned that yet. So let's see if he continues his streak of dying in every movie he's ever in. Um, so like I said, um, Colin, who is very visibly drunk, walks up to John and says, I think you owe me an apology. John, in his, you know, Sean Beam schwarminess, uh, basically, you know, tells him to fuck off. I don't know you anything, blah, blah, blah. Um, one of the people that's standing there with John basically puts his hand on Colin to tell him, hey, stop that. Get out of here. Um, Colin pushes him down to the ground. Then a couple of security guards come out. Uh, you know, they give they give Colin a little bit of a beating and then uh, kick him out of the house. So Colin is now outside of the house by himself. Uh, we then see that a few hours pass. Colin is still outside of the house, of uh, the mansion, and now we see him with a gun in his hand, uh, the same gun that he was issued for the first assassination that he didn't use. Um, he basically waits until all the guests have left, and it's just John and Ava left inside the mansion. He waits for Ava to go to bed, leaving John alone in the kitchen uh, drinking a bottle of uh, bourbon or something. And um, Colin walks into the kitchen and just nonchalantly sits right at the table right next to John. John, of course, is an asshole and he's drunk as shit because it's the end of the night. And he basically says, what the fuck do you want? Colin pulls out the gun and puts it on the table, actually lets it go, puts it on the table. Um, you know, John basically laughs it off. He doesn't think that, you know, Colin would have the balls to do what he's thinking about doing. So he basically just finishes his, his whiskey and then basically says, I'm going to bed. Fuck you. But as he goes to bed, as he gets up to go to bed, he makes a move for the gun. And instead of Colin taking the gun and shooting him, shooting John with it, he ends up picking up a fireplace poker and beats the living shit out of Sean Bean's character. Um, basically stabs him 
right through his head via the mouth. Basically sticks the poker in his mouth and drives it all the way through the back of his head. He pulls And the streak continues. <laughs> and he pulls out uh he pulls out the um the poker and we see just a gnarly shot of Sean Bean's teeth getting yanked out as he pulls out the poker. And then finally, as the last insult, uh, Colin literally pokes out one of Sean Bean's eyes, uh, literally pulls it completely out of his head with the fireplace poker. At this point, Ava comes back downstairs um, because she heard the commotion and she witnesses uh, John killing or excuse me, Colin killing John. She instantly freaks out because she's probably drunk, too. She's been drinking all night. Plus, she remembers the way that Colin, um, as he was being kicked out of the house, he was being very insulting to Ava herself, calling her a bitch a couple of times, blah, blah, blah. Um, So, like I said, Ava comes back down, witnesses Colin killing John, and then Colin pulls out his gun I don't know why he decides now he wants to use the gun, but he pulls out the gun. He shoots Ava a couple of times in the back as she runs away, but she does not die. She does fall over and she continues crawling as she's crawling away. um, uh, Colin continues poking and hitting uh, John's body with the poker, basically, you know, ensuring that he's dead. And then he goes after Ava and, this is one of the this isn't a brutal death as it's one of the coldest deaths in the film cuz literally Colin walks up to Ava she's on her stomach on the ground crying trying to crawl away and without any emotion whatsoever Colin slash Boz pulls out the gun and just puts one right in her head killing her instantly now at that moment the job is done both of the targets are dead, so we all know what's coming next. Uh, Colin, of course, has to uh, kill himself, has to commit suicide so that Vaz can get back to her real body. And once again, she can't do it. Um, uh, you know, we get another scene of mental fracturing, of, you know, just random, uh, you know, images flashing in his head, everything else. And, um, uh, basically I forget exactly how that scene ends, if he just walks away or not, but yeah, um, Colin finds Ava, shoots her in the head, and then again, Vaz can't bring himself to commit suicide. He has another breakdown implying that Colin is at least in my opinion, this particular breakdown, because it's showing more of Vaz's memories, that Colin shouldn't be a part of. It kind of shows that um, Colin is, again, regaining more control of his body. And at the same time, at the exact same time, back at the lab, Vaz is seen convulsing and bleeding profusely. Um, all the techs, you know, try to help her out. Obviously, they can't take her out of the machine. I assume it would kill her if they took her out before she severed the tie with the host body you know, by committing suicide. So they, they just try to do whatever they can for her. Uh, they are able to stabilize Vaz. And at that moment, Colin kind of snaps out of his little mental break. 
he leaves uh, the Parse's mansion, the Parsi's mansion, and we see that he's being followed by two men. <laughs> this is another plot point that's kind of abandoned because we see these same two guys following Colin for probably the next 15 minutes of the movie. Uh, but then it just goes away. Like, we never find out who those two guys are. I mean, yeah, we can assume that maybe they're goons for Parse, or potentially they work for the lab, and they're just making sure that Colin doesn't do anything too drastic to fuck up the program, blah, blah, blah. Who knows? Your guess is as good as mine. So. I, I think it might have been designed like that to where we're really not supposed to know. Like, they could just be two random guys going in the same direction, or... I, they could not uh, two, two random guys because they show him in multiple scenes following Colin. It's not just that scene. Later on, after Colin changes into the non-bloody clothes, the the homeless guy's clothes, they're still following. Mm -hmm. They're they I mean you see him because one of them has a red scarf on, so he's very easy to pick. Yeah. Up. Um. So let's see. Um. Uh, after he leaves that place, uh, like I said, we see that. Uh, <clears throat> the two men are following him. Uh, we then go back to the lab. And at the lab, the techs confirm with Gerder that Colin is now the dominant personality, that it's showing that Vaz is no longer the dominant and that Colin is controlling the action of his body. Um, so obviously they're concerned about Vaz, you know, where is she? Is he actually holding her hostage in his own mind now? Is Colin smarter than maybe they gave him credit for? Blah, 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 blah. Um, like I said, then Colin grabs uh, some clothes out of a Goodwill dumpster, changes out of his bloody clothes that he killed John and Ava in. And he actually starts to go to Rita's apartment. Remember, Rita was the girl that was hitting on him at the party at Ava's apartment earlier in the film. Um, he tells Rita that he ended it with Ava so that they could be together. He doesn't actually mention killing them. What he says is, um, it was self-defense. They attacked me. But, like, he, he, the conversation is as fragmented as his mind. Because first he'll be talking about how he ended it with Rita. Then he'll be talking about how they attacked me. I was just defending him myself. Then he talks about how... Uh, he broke up with Rita so that they could be together, that they actually had a fight earlier today and that they broke up. Basically, he's being real erratic. You know, his, his speech doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Rita is very visibly confused. All she knows is that he's hurt. He's bleeding from the head. And she obviously cares about him in some way. So she starts to tend uh, to the wound on his head, uh, which is basically the whole the input that was put into his head basically is bleeding at this point. Um, so Colin basically asks Rita if he can stay at her apartment while she's out of town. Rita is about to leave town for a couple of days. She's going to Chicago, I assume, for business. <clears throat> and um, you could tell that Rita doesn't really want to right away, but after a few seconds of thinking about it, she's like, okay, you can stay here for a couple of nights drop off the key with the uh, front desk attendant on your way out, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Colin is thankful. Um, at that point, Rita decides to go take a shower. And as soon as Rita leaves the room, Colin, you see his expression kind of change. He pulls the gun out of his pocket, starts looking at it, almost like he has something that he needs to do. 
And then we see him walking towards the bathroom where Rita is showering. He pulls out the gun, walks into the bathroom, and points it right at Rita. We see Rita naked in the shower, uh, terrified because she has a gun pointed at her. But then the camera pans back, and it's not Colin anymore. It's now Vaz. It's Vaz wearing Colin's clothes, but she's holding the gun that's pointed at Rita. Um, at that moment, uh, we are then, so there's no gunshot, no one dies right now. Basically at that moment, we're transported back to the living room where Colin is listening to a news report. And what does the news report say? John Parse was the victim of an attack earlier today, but has survived his wounds. Yes, he's in critical condition. He's in a coma, but the main target still lives. So basically, uh, Colin slash Vaz failed. Despite everything that he did to John's head with that fucking poker, he still somehow survived. So go figure. Ava is very obviously dead, though. They even say that, you know, his daughter was killed in the attack. Well, see, I didn't... I mean, I, I obviously looked at it more in a different sense. I looked at it more as just like a potential letting the victim think that the job was unfinished to see if they would come back to finish mm -hmm. the job. Hmm, that's that's odd though because why would cuz now the, Colin is a wanted man. Everyone knows what he looks like. Why would he try to finish the job? But well, I mean, you know, like my first thing was is that, you know, considering the high profile nature of it and Considering the idea that it was obviously an attack of some kind, not knowing who did it, figuring, you know, putting out a police report stating, okay, we have, you know, these two victims, one did die, but then this other one is in critical condition, we're trying to, you know, keep him alive, maybe it would have been an idea to, you know, see if the attacker would have come out of hiding and shown themselves, because they don't oh, you really the, know that... you mean the news was lying, I gotcha, I gotcha. Right, it I, was... I, I just... mm. That's a stretch. That seems like a major stretch. Because like I said, because they know that it's Colin. They say it in the news report. Colin Tate attacks John Parsi and his daughter. So Colin is now a wanted man. That's why he went to Rita's apartment. He knew that he couldn't go home. There'd be cops waiting for him. That's why he went to Rita's. So, And, and like I said, in the report, they say specifically Colin Tate is wanted, is wanted for questioning. So... Yeah, they kind of know he did it. Plus, a guy that rich to not have cameras in his house is probably impossible. I mean, that that house was a mansion. There has to be some kind of video security in there. So uh, it's very obvious uh, to the police who did this and, you know, which explains all of his actions since then. Um, so anyway, after the, the, the news report from W Exposition, that's my favorite news channel, um, Eddie shows up at Rita's apartment. Yes, Eddie, uh, his friend from work, shows up at the apartment, basically lets Colin know, I heard you were in an accident, so I wanted to come by and make sure you were okay. Um, obviously, Colin is confused because he didn't even realize that Eddie knew Rita in any way, shape, or form. Um, but then as Colin turns around to go make himself a drink, uh, Eddie shoots him with a weird gun. It's not a normal gun that shoots bullets. It might be a taser. It might be like some kind of weird taser. It's not like a modern taser where the two lines come out uh, to complete the circuit and electrocute the person. And it's definitely not a stun gun. It's definitely... Uh, I could have... Mm -hmm. Could have been just like a regular trank gun or something. 
It could have been, but it was just so weird the way it sparked. I mean, you saw yeah. how it sparked when he fired it. It was really yeah. odd, really hard to describe. But yeah. Um, so anyway, he he does not kill Colin. He basically just incapacitates him. Um, when Colin comes to, or should I say, while Colin is out cold, Eddie hooks him up to another machine, yet another machine, kind of like the calibration machines that we've seen earlier in the movie, but this this was bigger. It was a much bigger machine. Uh, when Colin comes to, when he finally wakes up and he realizes what's going on, Eddie admits to him, basically reveals to him that he works for Gerner and the organization and that Gerner sent him in, um, and that he's actually been a plant. Eddie was a plant the entire time, apparently. So Lord knows how long this plot has been in motion. But Eddie, for however long Eddie and Colin have known each other, it was all a ruse. Eddie was a plant by the corporation. So after Eddie reveals all this, uh, there's actually, once again, kind of a funny little scene where Eddie starts to fanboy a little bit over Tasia Vaz. He's, he starts talking about, oh, my God, I never thought that I would ever get to meet you. You're my hero. You know, when I first heard about your skills, I was so impressed, blah, blah, blah. He, literally, he's like a fanboy. Um, but he's talking to Colin, of course who he thinks is being controlled by Vaz, but it's already been established. Vaz does not have full control at this point. Colin has partial control. So uh, he's basically admitting to Colin that he was a plant, not to Vaz. So. I love the, I love the fact though, that you see, I always took the scene as like, you don't hundred percent know if the friends like mm -hmm. telling the truth. I, this scene gave me like video drunk. Cause I know you, you, uh, uh, one of the references you brought up way at the beginning yep. in general thoughts is like video drum. This to me was like a scene that had a video drum feel to it where like James Woods is basically encountering all these shady characters mm -hmm. from that network. And he doesn't know like who's on the level, who's telling the truth, who really has something else going on in behind it. Um, this scene, I, I love this scene because you want to believe the friend, but you're still a hundred percent not sure. Like, is he really from the corporation? Oh, yeah. Is he from like some outside group? And then how it unfolds is even better. <laughs> exactly. I don't take anybody in this movie at face value other than Michael. He's probably the mm -hmm. only trustworthy personality in this movie. Yeah. So even Eddie is still, you know, there's that little grain of salt there where mm -hmm. it's like, eh, okay, Eddie, whatever. But anyway, uh, so after Eddie is done fanboying over uh, Tasia Vaz, Vaz actually hands Eddie the gun and asks him to shoot her. Uh, Eddie says two things. The first thing he says is, oh, no, 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 I'm a Christian. I could never murder anyone. And then the second thing he says is, well, you know I can't kill you. It has to be you or it has to be somebody, you know, like, like in the opening scene with the police, the you know, suicide by cop. It's got to be someone not involved in the situation that takes out the assassin. So, you know, so obviously, uh, you know, we get our confirmation there that she does have to die by her own hands or by someone else who doesn't know who she is, blah, blah, blah. At this point, Eddie tells um, Colin that he's going to perform a pulse analysis. Um, what the fuck a pulse analysis is? I don't know. They're analyzing his pulse. There you go. Uh, so basically, that's the machine that Colin wakes up connected to. Uh, basically, what happens is Eddie turns on the machine and, you know, 
I have no idea what's going on, but basically as soon as he turns on the machine, suddenly we start getting parallel editing between the real world and uh, inside of Colin's mind. So basically what we're seeing is um, when, when we're in the real world, the lighting is normal and we see Colin on the bed and Eddie next to him. But then when he switches on the pulse analyzer, it goes to a scene that's lit in red, red lighting, and we see Vaz in the bed, and Eddie is nowhere to be found. Um, he basically, every time he switches the machine on and off, we switch between those two viewpoints, real world and inside of Colin's head. Suddenly, we start to notice that as the pulse analyzer is on and we see Vaz on the bed, we start to see Colin come out of the closet. Um, I doubt there's any <laughs> crazy understory, you know, layer to that. I don't think Colin's gay, but yes, he does come physically comes out of the closet, sees Vaz laying on the bed. Eddie is nowhere to be found. And he literally climbs on top of Vaz and starts to strangle her. Um, he strangles her for, you know, a good, you know, five, 10, 15 seconds, but then he realizes he's not making a dent. He's not going to be able to kill her by strangling her inside of his mind. So what he ends up doing is he ends up bringing his hands up to, the, to, to her head, not around her neck, but actually around her head. And he actually crushes her face like a porcelain doll. It doesn't break into it's almost like a porcelain doll with a rubber outer coating because it's not like it falls into pieces, but he absolutely caves in her head like her head is just completely obliterated. Then we see Colin, mind you, we're still in Colin's mind. You can tell by the red lighting. He then takes uh, the outer rubber skin, uh, the life mask, if you will. Anybody who knows what a life or a death mask is. Basically, he picks up her mask and puts it on. That's the image on the poster. So anybody who sees the poster and sees that kind of distorted image of Tasia Vaz, that's this scene where he basically takes her mask and puts it on. And as soon as he puts it on, he's overflowed with all of Vaz's memories. They all start rushing in. And he starts, I, I think he starts to realize that he now has not only total control of his body, but partial control of Vaz's mind as well. Like he's able to subdue her inside of his mind. She has no control at this point, or at least very little control. Um, once again, really cool image where we see him wearing the distorted mask while he's going through all these different scenes. We see the scene from earlier where Michael and Vaz were having sex, but this time Vaz's face is the distorted mask. Um, you know, and we just see a lot of, uh, a lot more images like that. So after, uh, after this next set of visions of all of Vaz's life and all of her crimes and everything else, Colin wakes up and he looks around the room and he realizes that he inadvertently killed Eddie. Eddie is lying on the ground in a pool of blood with a bullet hole in his head. Colin, like I said, he wakes up with the gun in his hand, once again trying to kill himself. Uh, but this time, I feel like it's not Vaz trying to kill himself to get out of Colin's body. I feel like it was genuinely Colin breaking down and just wanting to die. But... Ju but stay staying with the theme, 
he can't do it. He can't pull the trigger. Uh, he's unable to kill himself despite all his efforts. Um, you know, and, and then after that, he goes to the bathroom and he realizes that he killed Rita in the shower as well. Rita's dead body once again in a pool of her own blood lying at the floor of her shower. So, you know, all everything is rushing back. Everything that Colin's mind missed the first time because Vaz was in control is all starting to rush back, which is why he tries to kill himself. But unfortunately, again, he can't bring himself to do it. So at this point, Colin once again goes to Michael's house, this time with the intent to kill or at the very least to get answers. But while he's walking up to Colin, uh, to Michael's house, he actually ends up meeting Ira, who is, of course, Vaz and Michael's son. And he starts talking to him. He starts talking about what's drawn on the piece of paper. Ira says it's a map. Um, you know, Colin says, where does the ma- what's the map for? Where does it lead you? Ira says, oh, it leads to a pond that I just found earlier today. Then Colin, you can see his, his, um, his expression kind of change a little bit. And he asks Ira, do you live in that house right there? Because I think I know you. At that exact moment, Michael comes out and calls Ira into the house. So after this, a few minutes go by with Ira, or excuse me, with Colin slash Vaz, mostly Colin at this point, um, outside of Michael's house. Finally, he works up the, uh, the courage to knock on the door introduces himself to Michael as a friend of Tessia. And, um, you know, Michael informs him, oh, she doesn't live here anymore. Uh, You'll have to go find her somewhere else, blah, blah, blah. Michael tries to then close the door and Colin forces his way into the house. Um, He basically pulls out his gun, points it right at Michael's head. He's basically holding Michael down on the dining room table with the gun on his head, basically asking, where is she? Where is Vaz? I know she's here. Where is she? Michael, of course, has no idea what's going on. As far as he's concerned, she's not even in the country. She's out on another business trip, blah, blah, blah. And then um, Michael starts basically uh, talking a bunch of cryptic shit about Vaz to Michael. Uh, Starts talking about how, uh, do you know that your wife is a predator? Did you ever have an idea that your wife is a predator? And and then he starts talking about, um, he starts making a metaphor about a worm. Basically a worm getting into someone's brain and changing their personality. And then Michael, uh, excuse me, Colin asks Michael, uh, is she more worm or is she more uh, wife? And then he even asks Michael, when you're laying in bed and fucking her, are you fucking the worm or are you fucking her? So, you know, basically throwing that um, fractured personality thing out there yet again. At this point, Colin starts yelling at the top of his lungs, for Vaz to come out. He keeps saying, come out or I will kill him. I swear I will kill him. Finally, Vaz, the image of Vaz does show up. I assume this whole scene occurs inside of Colin's head because Vaz shows up, very visible to Michael. Um, They start talking, you know, uh, Vaz, you know, starts talking to him about control, starts talking to him about what he did to his girlfriend. And, you know, Colin basically says, that wasn't me, that was someone else. 
And Vaz says, no, that was you. That was definitely you. You killed your girlfriend. Trying to imply that, you know, it was something that Colin had been planning the whole time, killing John and his daughter. Um, obviously, Vaz is lying yet again, trying to get the upper hand on Colin. Um, let's see. At this point, right after she tries to convince Colin that he did indeed intend to kill Ava and John, Michael um, kind of not comes to, but basically makes his presence known. He dis he's able to disarm Colin. He's able to knock the gun out of his hand. Unfortunately, uh, he takes a single shot and misses. And after he takes the shot that misses, Colin grabs the fucking biggest meat cleaver I've ever seen in my life and starts just chopping away at Michael. The first chops off a piece of his uh. hand and then just starts burying the hatch, uh, the cleaver, excuse me, into Michael's chest. Now, I mentioned earlier that when Holly killed her target, she stabbed him 21 times. Ha! This one's even better. Uh, at this point, Colin stabs or chops Michael with the cleaver 28 times. Um, and like I said, including cutting off half of his hand, like... Uh, literally like two fingers and a thumb off of the hand that he was holding the gun with. Very brutal. This death is even more brutal than the one at the beginning because now we know who Michael is. We know Michael is the only 100% innocent person in this fucking movie. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, it's definitely a sad scene to see him get taken out so violently. And then you start to question... Is that Michael or is that Vaz? Because earlier in the film, uh, when Gerder and Vaz were having their first therapy session, uh, Gerder kind of makes the comment about how she doesn't like that Vaz is kind of um, uh, going to see her family more, talking about wanting to take vacations with them. She talks about how she was happy when Vaz and Michael separated because it meant Vaz is able to concentrate on her career more. So I'm wondering, did Vaz start to buy into that? Did she start to resent her husband and her son? Um, to the point where at one point in the film, she even questions if she ever loved Michael. I mean, she married this man, had a child with him, but then questions whether she ever truly loved this guy. So that is another little bit of a mind fuck. Did Michael... Uh, excuse me, did Colin kill Michael or did Tessia Vaz kill Michael? Something to think about. So, after killing Michael, um, Colin once again uh, wants to kill himself. Um, I think at this point, Vaz has control because Colin is heard saying, pull me out, which is what they say right before they commit suicide. Um, and again, he's seen putting the gun in his mouth can't pull the trigger, putting the gun to the side of his head, can't pull the trigger. Uh, finally, he just gets so frustrated with himself that he just falls to the floor, and he's sitting on the floor still trying to commit suicide, and out of nowhere, a knife just comes out and stabs Colin right in the neck, just like the opening scene when Holly stabbed the fat guy in the neck. Almost identical. Um... As soon as Colin is stabbed in the neck, he looks up at his assailant and fires one shot. Um, 
at that point, the camera pans to show who the assailant was that stabbed Colin in the neck. It's fucking Ira. Yes, a child mm. has just been shot by Colin or potentially shot by his mother. Something to think about again. Um, let's see. At this point, uh, Colin kind of gets his bearings. Colin slash Foz gets his bearings, realizes that it's Ira. And instead of breaking down and dropping the gun, Colin takes four more shots at the boy, blowing fucking part of his head off with the final <laughs> shot. I have yeah, never seen brutal. a more brutal child death. Like, I thought Funny Games was brutal when they killed that kid with a shotgun. This was fucking intense. I mean, yeah. we see the bullet go through the back of his fucking head. And even, then, uh-huh. even, even if after the first shot is fired and we see that he's, like, shot in the midsection, yep. even if the rest of the shots from the gun happen off screen or you know we see the gun we don't actually see the kid getting shot just the fact that we would have heard three more shots or four or however many we we would have got the point but the fact that they're like nope we're actually going to show you yep and i appreciate that so much anybody who what listens to my shows knows i loves me a good child death in a movie it's it's one of the last taboos left in horror and i fucking love it and now, Grant, uh-huh. and i'll go I'll, I'll go i'll go back to what i said at the beginning general thoughts you know a scene like this yes there is the shock factor to it but i think what the final scene of the movie which we're just about to get to reveals is why it was justified to show the brutality of what just happened because then when we get the conclusion of the care or you know the conclusion of the movie and kind of how that character reacts it, mm-hmm. it drives the point home, which we'll get to in a sec. Yep. Okay, so <clears throat> at this point, Colin and Ira are both on the floor dying. They're both in, lying in large pools of their own blood. <clears throat> Suddenly, the camera zooms in on Ira's face, and we hear Ira say, pull me out. And then uh, we are transported back to the lab, and what do we see? We see Jennifer Jason Lee's character Girder coming out of the binding machine. Yes, Girder went in, uh, possessed Ira. So, you know, to, to go ahead and basically complete what I think was Girder's ultimate plan. Basically, I feel like this entire movie is Girder's plan. And I'll get to why she does all this in a second. So... Um, like I said, after we go back to the lab and see Girder um, exit the, or at least uh, they take the helmet off of her face from the binding machine, Vaz and Girder are laying side by side on the a binding machine, and they just kind of look at each other and exchange a look, and then turn away again. Um, basically, almost like they're just both making the, or, or Vaz is making the realization of what Girder did. And by turning away, I think she's kind of accepting it, like, you know, accepting what Girder did and the repercussions of that. Um, Then we basically go to our final scene of the film where once again, Vaz is doing the post-assassination therapy session where they give her the box of items. Once again, she pulls out her grandfather's uh, pipe 
and tells the exact same story that she told earlier, word for word. Then she pulls out the butterfly and she tells basically the same story of how she killed the butterfly, mounted it. But do you remember, folks, when I uh, when we talked about this the first time and I said to remember the line, I still feel guilty about this? Basically, Vaz tells the exact same story about the uh, the butterfly, but she does not say that she feels guilty about it, that she felt guilty about it back then or that she still feels guilty about it at that to this day. And as soon as that happens, uh, the camera pans up to Jennifer Jason Lee and Jennifer Jason Lee just gives a sly little smile. And the last image that we see is just um, is Vaz holding the butterfly in the display box, just staring at it. And then she herself gives off not as big a smile as Jennifer Jason Lee, but a much more like subtle little grin, you know, more than a smile and uh, fade to black, and that is our movie. Now, the reason that I feel like Gerder was the mastermind of this entire thing was because of the comment that she made earlier about how she didn't like the fact that Vaz was starting to gravitate towards her family again after after separating from them. Because, like, I, I, I think Gerder wants... Uh, Vaz to be a heartless, unfeeling killer, to have no ties to anything in her life that might take her away from the job. So my my theory is that Gerder had this entire thing planned out, that everything went exactly the way she wanted it to. Even though it seemed like the, the plot was going to shit with all the mental breaks and the fracturing and everything else, I personally think that Gerder pulled this entire thing off so that she could get her Rambo assassin back. Mm -hmm. What do you think? I I think at at heart, Taz is the Rambo assassin, the cold-blooded, like, no emotions. But she was trying to make an effort to lead the double life with, you know, the ex and the kid and try to take a more active role, even though she wasn't. Because in that final scene, you would think... Uh, ha- having the realization that sh- she basically just like blew her kid away yeah. that, you know, she'd be pissed off or wanting to quit or be unconsolable crying. And she basically had zero emotion over the fact that yeah. her kid's dead. And so I-, I think that all goes back to the play on what yeah. the movie's actually about, which is identity. And she's basically coming to terms with like, this is who I am, this cold-blooded, emotionless thing. And this whole thing with the family was me trying to fit this other role in life that wasn't yeah. really me. And now Absolutely. that they're gone and out of the way, I can realize the person I actually am. Yeah, and, and a big support for that is um, when when Colin kills Michael with the meat cleaver, we see Colin killing Michael. But... Who do we see when she takes those four shots to to Ira, to her son? We don't see Colin. We see Vaz. Mm -hmm. Vaz purposely kills her son. I think that 
as the movie's going along, Vaz starts to realize and maybe even resent her husband and child a little bit because subconsciously they are keeping her from being the heartless assassin that she and Gerger wants her to be. So I, I definitely think that there was some actual malicious intent uh, from a mother to her son in that scene. Um, and like I said, they show Vaz holding and shooting the gun. They don't show my, um, Colin. So, I mean, this movie gives you so much to think about. I mean, you could watch this movie five times and come up with five new things, new theories that you, you know, that could support what you're seeing. And that's why I love movies like this. You know, maybe not the most exciting, the most action packed, but it gives you so much to think about when the movie's over. And I mean, you know, the interpretation of the movie that I have now might drastically change the next time I watch it. But after two watches in the last three days, that's kind of what I'm going to go with. And listeners, if you've seen this movie and you have theories that greatly differ from mine, uh, or anybody else's on this show, please let us know. I, I love being educated. I love seeing other people's opinions on art that I love and even art that I don't love, you know? So by all means, if you watch this movie and you've got your own interpretations of what's happening, what the ending represented, blah, 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 by all means, hit us up on Facebook. Uh, you can drop me a line, an email at mrvenompodcasts at gmail.com. Um, but yeah, man, let us know because this is a movie that I, I, I think I'm going to be talking about this movie for a little while. Um, you know, unless our next Fresh Cuts movie is another, you know, cerebral mind fuck, uh, you know, type of adventure. I got a feeling that I'm, that this movie is going to, you know, occupy some space in my brain for a little while. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> but yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I just echo what Venom said. I, I, I'm pretty online with what, or aligned with what he uh, has to say about it. Um, I did pick up, though, when you were explaining how you think Ger was, like, behind it, it, it makes sense now how she was kind of manipulating events the whole time, which I think, you know in the hierarchy chain of the company she wants her top assassin and that was the best way to keep her in line and focused yeah and like i like that. i mentioned like i mentioned earlier um the company the organization whatever it is um they definitely they do their due diligence as far as finding out who these people are both their targets and uh the people that they're going to possess so i i solidly believe that Gerger has been watching Colin for a while. She knows that he's just dark enough to maybe, you know, kill a child or kill an innocent husband, um, mm -hmm. along with the weakness of his mind, you know, since he was a former drug dealer and he had other crimes, you know, on his, on his rap sheet that potentially his mind wasn't all there. And he was close to the target, which is important, too, because it needs to be, oh, it needs to be someone who has access. Who it, it won't come off as, like, weird when he's walking in on, like, a dinner party or whatever and just going up to, like, Sean Bean's character and sure, <laughs> make sure. up but, a but lot of himself. But he also couldn't be a loving boyfriend because right, then it would be exactly. that he kills mm -hmm. his stepfather and, you know, girlfriend – or the stepfather, excuse me, for a future father-in-law and girlfriend, so – 
Yeah, uh, the more I think about it, the more I feel like this is all on Girder, and she got exactly what she wanted. So is it a happy ending? It might be for Girder, but it's definitely not for Boz. <laughs> yeah, and I love the fact that, like, I mean, I guess just ethically you can tell that the the company is very nefarious, but we don't even need to, like, spend much time with, like, you know, corporate execs or, like, the board or anything just to know that, like, yeah, this is, this is some crazy shit going on. We Because uh, we get Girder, um, Taz, and, like, a couple of, like, the doctor engineer people who actually do the implantations. And other than that, um, you know, we, we don't know a lot about the company. Exactly. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. Oh, I'm okay. With it. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, I don't need every plot point handed to me on a silver platter by any stretch. Like I said earlier, this is a, you know, it's a cerebral film. It's a movie that'll make you think, um, assuming you enjoyed what you watch, it's going to make you think. And, uh, you know, uh, like I said, I'm going to be thinking about this one for a while. I'll probably watch it again before the end of the year. I don't think this will be in my top 10, despite being a great film. I don't think it's going to be in my top 10 just because it's not enough horror for me to justify putting it in the top 10. Um, you know, especially over the last couple of years, we've seen podcasters putting very questionable movies into their top 10 as far as like if they are horror or not. But ultimately, it's your top 10. You do it the way you want. I like my top 10 to be solidly 10 horror films. So you know, uh, despite loving this movie and really, I mean, this is like my favorite movie I've seen probably since his house. So that's like what over a month ago. So, uh, yeah, really good movie, but probably won't, you, you won't hear me talk about it much more in our top 10 show other than maybe an honorable mention. And I'm pretty Ooh. sure it's safe to say it won't be in Don's top 10. Yeah. And yeah. Any final <laughs> thoughts on the movie, Don? Yeah, fat fucking chance this will show up. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, I know a lot of people would probably be surprised that I was that I didn't hate that I didn't like this one, but I think I've shown enough that if I like something, I will follow the, the more cerebral stuff. I mean, I know my rating on Relic, and I know my rating on um, uh, what was that other one we did? Uh, uh, Dark and the Wicked? Yes. Yeah, I think my ratings on that one were kind of a shock for people, considering, you know, my reputation and such. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, um, there, there's just nothing here for me, so... That's valid. Like I said, yeah. not every movie's gonna work for everybody. Yeah. Alright, Mike, what do we say we wrap a bow on this one? Yeah... Um, we're going to get out of here, but first, let's find out what we all have uh, available for people to listen to. So, Venom, what do you got? Well, unfortunately, once again, the main show, No More Room in Hell, uh, had to be postponed. I was having some issues with my computer. Uh, as you can hear, those issues have been corrected, and I'm, you know, back to where I need to be, so... Hopefully for the third, maybe fourth time, we will get this episode recorded this coming Sunday. Uh, Gary Hill will be our special guest, if assuming everything works out. And uh, like I said, we're going to be looking at a couple of Mike's picks. So uh, hopefully that'll be out sometime middle of next week. Check that out. 
Um, I recently did a guest spot on the 22 Shots of Moods and Horror podcast on the Horrorphilia Network. Uh, this was part of Italian Month. Uh, specifically, this was episode three of Italian Month, where we looked at three films from Alberto Di Martino. Those three films are The Antichrist, um, Holocaust 2000, also known as The Chosen, and uh, The Killer is on the Phone, which surprisingly stars Telly Savalas, which was a pleasant surprise for me. Uh, uh -oh. This was a first. This was a first-time watch. Maybe not the greatest movie, but Telly Savalas is so goddamn suave that he mm. could just stand there, and I like watching the movie. So yeah. And plus, I have Kojak. Uh, some of my greatest childhood memories are are of watching Kojak with my dad. So yeah, I love Telly Savalas. I'll watch anything with him in it. <laughs> uh, so like I said, that's on Twenty Two Shots. That episode just dropped uh, yesterday, I believe. So check that out. Um, I have uh, a guest spot coming up next week on Cut to the Chase. This will be one of their uh, Chase Miss uh, Christmas special episodes. Uh, we're actually going to look at a new film this time. We're going to look at Death's, uh, what is it? December, I think is the name of the movie. It is a uh, Christmas horror anthology that was just released on VOD. So check that out. Uh, like I said, I'll be on Cut to the Chase next week to talk about that one. And I'm sure we'll be talking about all sorts of fun Christmas stuff, as you know we always do on those types of episodes. Um, In the Mic of Madness makes its triumphant return after Rebecca took a couple of months off to deal with some of her independent horror filmmaking responsibilities. Uh, we came back and we didn't actually look at any particular movie, but what we did, we just wanted to have a little bit of fun with our, you know, return. And anybody who knows myself, Brad and Becca knows that we are three gigantic perverts. So we did an episode where all three of us listed our top 10 spank bank horror scenes. Yes, the scene <laughs> that we rewound four or five times so we can rub one out. And uh, yeah. My list was definitely the most oddball of them. I honestly thought that Brad and Becca would have more like shot on video stuff because that stuff gets, you know, really, really perverted sometimes. But they really stuck with a lot of the standard uh, choices that a lot of people make, whereas I was pulling out, um, I'd say six or seven of my top 10 were movies from the 70s. And I loves me some 70s women. So, you know, we talked about Jess Franco. We talked about some hammer stuff, you know, with, uh, Vampiro. well, Vampiros Lesbos is, uh, that's just Franco. Franco. Yeah, it's Franco. Yeah, that's um, but we talked about some of the other hair, you know, wicker man again, blah, blah, blah. So yeah, check out that episode. That episode is available now on the prescribed films podcast network, and we will be getting back to our regular biweekly schedule. We are scheduled to record tomorrow night, uh, to finally uh, finish off the Frank Henenlotter retrospective, we will start with the first basket case. And, you know, the next two episodes will obviously cover parts two and three. Um, so glad to be back there. Uh, so look out for that. Um, what else do I have going on? Um, I haven't. Unfortunately, I've missed the last couple of episodes of It's Not Horror Okay. Uh, one, because I was dealing with some abdominal pain, which uh, earlier this or late last week, I got the bad news that I am going to need surgery very soon to have my gallbladder removed. It, uh, I, have, I have bladder stones and um, 
the gallbladder is in bad shape overall. Like the lining is starting to blah, blah, blah. I don't know why I'm giving everybody a medical update, but there it is. So sometime in December or January, you may once again have to deal with an episode of Fresh Cuts without my wonderful silky smooth voice on the <laughs> airwaves. But, you know, I'll make sure that I try to schedule it so that I miss as little podcasting as possible. Um, and that's pretty much it from me. Cool. All right. Uh, do you got anything, Don? Yeah, I have a little bit of info to give. Um, you may have heard me actually with uh, Mike Venom and uh, regular co-host Derek on a special Thanksgiving commentary for the classic Blood Rage on the main feed. But I also have a special uh, second guest spot to announce. Um, I actually recorded with Derek on his show, Cinema Attack. Also for an Italian Horror Month show, we looked at the first two films in the Hotel Inferno trilogy, or series, I should say. Because, yeah, um, it's not going to be trilogy. There's going to be more. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, so uh, that one should be out probably around the same time this um, one drops. So. Yeah, I really love doing these Italian month guest spots, man. Because I, I, I will happily admit that Italian horror is probably my biggest blind spot. Because right? I spent so much time in the 90s looking up Japanese and German and Austrian horror and Filipino horror. That uh, Italian horror, um, because it was you know kind of ruled by giallos and I wasn't always the biggest giallo fan as a youngster... Um, it definitely became a blind spot. But, man, I am loving. Like, last year we did Aldo Lotto. Um, oh, the only, yeah. The only movie of his that I was ever familiar with before the episode was Night Train Murders, uh, which is still a favorite of mine. But we also looked at a couple other movies that I had never seen. And then this year for Alberto DiMartino, two of the three films were first-time watches for me. So I'm definitely loving all these Italian horror guest spots because it's filling in my only major blind spot, and I love it. <laughs> and, yeah. I'm, and I'm really genuinely loving these movies. I actually am a big Giallo fan now. Like, I don't need the ultra-violence and everything. Like, a good murder mystery is enough for me. And those 70s Italian Giallos with those amazing soundtracks, beautiful women, uh, you know, great storylines, I'm really getting into that stuff. Have you ever so, seen mm-hmm. a muck? Have you ever seen a muck? A muck. I don't believe I have, no. Oh, man, that would have made your spank bank list. <laughs> awesome. Well, now no, serious, I'll, serious, I'll just say this. Rosalba Neri and Barbara Boucher in the lesbian scene. Ooh, I know Boucher. I'm not familiar with the other one, but I'm excited. <laughs> okay, if you, know, if you know Barbara Boucher, then you know exactly what I mean. And trust oh, me yeah. when I say this, <laughs> the lesbian scene is damn near worth it. Oh, damn, if this thing jumps to the near the top of my spank bank, I might have to do an update. <laughs> no, seriously, it is. Awesome. If, if, I joked with Becca, that would have actually been my number one if I was on the show. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I will check that out. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, that's uh, my show, and uh, that's actually my updates because I've got no other shows left. <laughs> yeah, as far as myself, I don't have much at the present time i'll just say you know don already mentioned it though although the main show has got pushed back a few times we did manage to get that commentary out for uh, you know as a thanksgiving 
special. So there is that to listen to, uh, Blood Rage, which is available um, still on Shutter. So you, for people that like to actually watch the movie with the commentary, uh, there's an opportunity for that. If you don't so, have Shutter, it's also available on Amazon Prime for free. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I believe and, Tubi still has it too. But that, that Tubi has commercials, yeah. so you won't be able to follow the commentary. Yeah, and that's what I'm saying it. is that I don't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it kind of um, work, but I mean, I I know it's still there too, so. That's still an yeah. option, yeah. And Tubi's totally free, so yeah. That's a valid option. Yep. Just pause so the commentary every yeah. time Tubi goes to a commercial. <laughs> um, yeah, so other than that, No More Room in Hell number 26 should be recording this upcoming Sunday. Um, but otherwise, that's all I got. So we are down to only a handful of weeks left in 2020. So we'll try to, you know, cover what we can but uh once we end up doing our top 10 of the year this could be one of those years where there's plenty featured that we didn't even get to on the show it'll all just depend what else is out there and what we can crunch in oh i already have a really good idea of what we want to do but it's probably very obvious as i am the spaniard on the show (laughs) (laughs) but we'll talk about that off air (laughs) all right well uh this episode is done so Thank you, everyone, for listening, and say goodnight to the listeners. Adios. Hail Satan. Later.